reputation for writings that Paul had. But we see here in verses 1 through 5 in Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It almost looks here like verse 5 is actually a benediction on the first five verses where Paul gives an opening and then he gives a benediction immediately. That tells us something. That's very important to see what's going on here because what we're seeing here is Paul is writing the Galatians a very distinct, different type of letter than he does in any of the other epistles that he's written. This letter of Paul, it's not directed to only one church in this region, not one city, but more in the mid to southern portions of the churches that he was affected by, and he was affected by, by, by him having a heart and a direction of the Lord and the Holy Spirit to go in and to help open and to center these churches on the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. It was not just one city where there were many letters, but where, where there was letters to just one church, but many letters to the entire province. Nation was This nation was now called Galatia. Here Paul is sent by Christ through the Holy Spirit to plant and water and garden these churches as we saw back in Acts 18. And you know, it's very important to see missionaries. A good missionary goes back to their missionary ground, even if they are on furlough for a while or if they retire, a good missionary does go back and somehow checks on the churches that he helped to establish. This ecclesiastical pipeline is extremely important and it goes back to the prophets, it goes to the apostles, and the apostles would go check on churches. One of the things we do miss in some of these epistles that would really be wonderful to know, where were some of the other apostles at the same time? Right now we know where Paul is, but Peter, he's working in Jerusalem with the Jerusalem Council, and what kind of work was he doing? And some of the other apostles. I think it's fascinating to see that Paul is, has a directive, and it's so important to tie this book of, of Galatians into the book of Acts. And there's one reason of many, of many, many reasons, that the fact that Luke himself took these words and wrote the book of Acts, and as an extension of what happened in the book of Acts, we read Paul now writing, and he's writing the church in Galatia, Luke confirms that everything that Paul writes is, an, is of an infallible, there's infallible truth. That what Paul is trying to teach the church in Galatia, it's incredible what he's trying to teach them. He's showing them something, and we're seeing something different that we really haven't seen quite yet. Right now, we saw Paul and how Paul in the book of Acts is on three missionary journeys, and he goes in and he's establishing churches. He's encouraging them. He is incorporating the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Now something changes, and it's a very sad thing that changes here. This is not ancient writing. This is not something to be declared as some kind of old mythological fairy tale. What Paul is doing here in the church of Galatia is exactly what the churches in America need right now. What he does is incredible. And he's one of the few that has the guts and the courage to do what really needs to be done. Sure, absolutely. Great to see you back.
Yes. You know, I think it comes down to the Lord being the sovereign of God. Right. That the Lord didn't know that these things would be creeping into the church, so he addresses them. Right. And people are quick to just push this aside and just read narratives of books because they think they've outgrown this. Right. Right. The writing of many books, there is no independent career of some of your soul. That's right. So if you see libraries of books that people are reading about different ideas about God's word, and I'm talking about people sometimes read thousands of books, where do they have time to read the real thing? That's the problem. I'm going to bring this up, and this might open up a little extra conversation here. Someone, someone, someone who had visited this church a while handed me a book. You know what I'm talking about, the book Restoration. That book, I started reading it. I promised that I wouldn't read the whole thing. I don't. I really don't want to read it. That book, I'm going to bring it up, is a perfect opening for what exactly is happening right here. And when you hear why this is wicked, this will probably, if you're listening and you're really paying attention, because it's going to get a little academic, you're going to see something that you may never seen again. I can promise you, I've been working on this study for almost eight months now, and I can tell you I've seen things that I've never even begun to see but that are spiritual, heavenly, very important to, to embolden and put into concrete the things that the Lord has taught us through His Word. This book is about the new Hebrew root movement going on today, and there's two things that it opens up in the foreword. It calls Christianity iconoclastic, Number one, and it, and, it, and it asks Christians to set on the shelf their proverbial knowledge of Scripture to go back and open up to a whole new religion that they haven't seen. It was an old religion. Iconoclasty means that you are a type of religious person that likes to destroy the veneration of images and ancient artifacts and gods. That's what it means. And so basically, when you have iconoclasm, they're saying that Christians want to take the old ceremonial implements and destroy them. And they use that to say that the new Christian church is trying to abrogate like the reliquies. One of the biggest things Martin Luther talked about in the Catholic Church. This, this happens, this pertains to the Catholic Church too. Because one of the biggest things that came out of the 16th century is instead of going to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Pope had the people going to the reliquies. They had, they had claimed that they had found the pants of Joseph. They had found one of the spikes that had been in the, the, the hand of Christ. They had, the, they had breast milk from Mary. They said they had it in a cup. And, and I'm serious. And Luther wrote about this. And the people were worshiping the Pope's old, basically it's like Luther called it his old closet of junk instead of going to the gospel. There was all these other ones. They were saying there was, they had a couple thorns from the crown of thorns that was in the head of Christ. And there was all these little things that the Pope had. Remember that church of Notre Dame when it burned, burned down a few years ago? One of the things they were most really sad about is the reliquy. But it's amazing. If you look over the centuries, there must be 20,000 thorns from, from the, thorn, the, the thorns that went into the head of Christ. There must be 4,000 different spikes that they found. It only took like five or six. And there's so many different ranges of the, what's in these reliquies. We know that it's all wrong and it's fake. 
Remember that, what was the Shroud of Turin? Letter Nimoy had that thing on. Oh, they've had all these different shrouds and all this stuff. that. I, why don't we stop looking at the junk and start looking at the truth of the gospel? That's what Paul's trying to say here. But that book is really reaching out. That We're talking this book, Restoration. It is really reaching out and it's changing people. And it's taken them down a very dark road. And we're going to find out why, because that book is exactly what the Judaizers were doing here at the Church of Galatia. It was taking people away from the new covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to get them back into the works-oriented ceremonial law without Christ. See, the thing about Moses was that Moses was obeying these legislations from God in order to magnify the coming of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. They completely take that away. And when we see this, this then we, now you can set the mood and understand why Paul is furious. All I can tell you this, the stylist or the pencil or the pen that he's using to write this had to be smoking when he wrote this. That, that's how furious he was. You're reading a letter that's very much different than the other epistles, and I'll tell you two reasons. Number one, you see no commendation to the Galatian church. When Paul loved the churches and he wrote them, he called them and he loved them and he said he gave them an accommodation for the work they're doing for Christ. You do not see that here in Galatians. Number two, you don't see him giving any thanksgiving at all. He would always give thanksgiving to the churches that he was writing, the church at Ephesus. He loved the church at Ephesus. He loved the church at Thyatira and all these different churches. But this one, he's rolled his sleeves up. Paul, before... We have to go back to Acts chapter 16, 5 and 18, 23, and I'm going to tell you why. Can I ask Jacob, could you look up Acts chapter 16, 5? And could I ask Greg, could you look up Acts 18, 23? Um, I'm sorry we have to go back to Acts. Actually, I'm not sorry, because I wish we could have done that all over again. I loved it. But look at the book of Acts, and I'm going to tell you, this gives you, us an idea on the difference of the tenor of what's going on here. So if Jacob, you have Acts, Acts 16, 5, read that, and then Greg, when you're ready. Important. Go ahead, Greg. 1823, if you have that. Thank you. That's important. Watch this. That which the churches were taken away from was the sole worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to assert the observance of the laws of Moses. I wrote this months ago, and I've been reading this, re rewriting this and rewriting this till I got it just the way I thought it should be predicated on these scripture verses. But Paul's work was to partner, basically to show that the... the Paul was showing that the works of Christ were not partnered with Moses. And this new movement that's going on, this Judaizing movement, is the same thing that he was dealing with here. And so basically, these people, they were smitten in Galatia by the Judaizers who would snuff out any affinity for Jesus and resort back to the ceremonial laws as a works-oriented attempt. And what it did was it took away justification by faith alone. 
Now, I know that's a big statement, and we are going to be spending time in the book of Galatians, so don't get all hyperventilated about this big doctrinal term. We are going to dissect justification by faith, and we are going to slowly and reverently incorporate it so that it's not some kind of academic college class. I know that we're trying to have a nice, have a, have a nice time of worship and fellowship learning, so we're going to do this as we go along, and we're going to see how it pops up. But I want to incorporate this now and get this into our hearts. Justification by faith means this. Now, I know if somebody's listening to this on a CD or whatever, I don't even get into all that. All I know is they might take this the wrong way. But all I'm doing is trying to give a lead into justification by faith. All you have to know is it takes the works-oriented philosophies and the works-oriented religions completely away from their basis of their salvation. Justification by faith means you're justified by faith in everything that Jesus Christ ever did. That is the gateway. That is the pillars of the sovereignty of God and the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way. That is so important. And basically what was happening here, Jacob just read something very important and Greg read something very important. What happened at the end of these verses when Paul was getting ready to leave Galatia? Do you remember what happened with the churches? How did they treated him? We went over this pretty, pretty hard. For two weeks, we went over this. He was getting ready to leave. They cried. They, wrote, they put their arms around him and they cried. You could probably have felt their little physical tears going down his neck because they were all around him and he was getting ready to go. Does anybody remember why he had to leave? I just gave it away. He had to leave. Does anybody remember? It, right, it was getting to be too volatile. Even Paul himself told them, listen, they're coming after me. The churches, you stay rooted in these churches, and you do not turn your back on Christ no matter what it costs you, but right now the tension is so high, I need to get to Jerusalem. I need to go over land and sea, and I need to get back to the council, and then I've got a whole other missionary journey to go on to. And so Paul, at this time, he has the attention of these churches in Galatia. He has their attention, and I say that because you would have thought that at the time, he goes in, he performs miracles, they saw him perform miracles. And he performed those miracles and showed that it was of Christ, but there is one major thing that we have to see as the lead-in for Galatia. How does Paul approach the church of Galatia? How does he approach them? Somebody read verse 1 again. Let's talk about this. Because we're going to talk about this. This is extremely important. Verse 1. That's right. What did he say? Raised him from the dead. But what is, he, what is his position, his office? Yes. Amen. Now, why? That is a big question. Why is he confirming that he is an apostle as opposed to a disciple or some other type of leader? Lisi. Right. Amen. Thank you. What are the three qualifications? We're going to get into this, and I'm going to be reading this again because it fits into my notes, and I don't want to read it. But while we're on this topic, 
Another good lead-in. What are the three qualifications of an apostle? Does anybody remember? We went over this exhaustively back all the way back in Acts chapter 9 when we were talking about Paul's commission. Yes. To have seen Christ. Now, the real question is here, do you... This is the thing I love about Christ. There is all these qualifications in Scripture to be a prophet or to be an apostle or to be all of these different... But he never says you have to be each one of them perfectly. Because we're men, we're mere men, and he's long-suffering. What are the three qualifications? Teresa's got the first one. You had to be seen by Christ, right? That's, that's what you said? That's right. There's two other ones. Yes, seen and called. That's another one. Then there's a third one. This is a big one. P Peter was there, kind of. What's that, Matt? Well, that's what Therese said. That's good. He heard his voice, but it's a third one. Anybody remember? This is a tough one. I'm sorry. That, you know, that's a good one, but that's an extension of the, of the office. Matt. That's kind of what Lisey's saying, and that's good, but the third qualification was you had to be present at the resurrection. Present at the resurrection. Now, that's three major qualifications that the theologians all agree with. Now, here's the big question. This is where we have to, we have to see in Scripture what a Scripture might be omitting. Because there are things we learn from, from omission from Scripture. If Paul, after, remember, remember they cast lots, and it was in Acts chapter 1, they cast lots for a 12th disciple, and Judas had already killed himself and even screwed that up, and he had already killed himself, and basically he's gone, and so they now cast lots for another apostle. At the time this was happening, Paul sitting under the tutelage of Gamaliel, he very well could have been at that resurrection. Remember how he was holding the cloak of Stephen? Theologians say that he was nowhere to be found. I don't believe that. He was studying in Jerusalem. You better believe if everybody was running down to see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I'm willing to bet that somewhere he was there. I believe that he was. Dave. You would have thought. But as Christ is very long-suffering... I do not believe that you had to bestow all three of those to be an apostle. The Lord could call whomever he wanted. And if Paul was not at the resurrection, I mean, could we say that Peter was at the resurrection? He was hiding. He wasn't there. He was hiding. He was gone. He had fled. James was there. Turns out James was there. John the Beloved was there. But all three of these qualifications, there's one primary qualification that is above two of them. You had to be physically called by Christ himself. And Paul had that on the road to Damascus. He talked to him. That's important because when Paul says that he abrogates, abrogates his old life as a Pharisee, orthodox, I'm talking about, when you talk about a Pharisee, he was orthodox 2.0 when it came to Pharisaical teachings. He was brilliant, and he, when he, he, he does not come back and say, Paul, a Pharisee of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm now an apostle. That's massive, because he was a Pharisee. And basically what he just did was he just completely shut down the Hebrew root movement by doing that. And we're going to look at that. This is fascinating what he does here. He says, I am an apostle not called of Gamaliel. 
not called of some of my other contemporaries, not called by the Jewish council. That was his whole life. Called by the very one they hate. Think about that. Think about this is massive what he's saying here when he writes this church and he's with other people writing this. He's saying, now I do not give homage to my contemporaries, to my alma mater, to my college in Jerusalem where I, where I learned under Gamaliel. I am under the gospel and the training of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, all that other stuff was nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Dung. He said it was a pile, a mile high of dung, all that stuff that I learned before. Can you see anybody saying that today from their big educations, from Western Reform Seminary that, turn, that teaches a lot, of these, a lot of these seminaries now teach gap theories and they teach old evolution, I mean theistic evolution, and they teach justification by faith is only predicated on our works. Can you believe that? Paul is saying here, you think this is good, where do you see what we get until next week? When he says any other gospel is accursed by Christ, anything else from him off of that cross, with him going unto the right hand of the Father and resurrecting, is nothing but anathema. He says it's nothing but heresy. <clears throat> I just It gets me going when I see I, That man was so brilliant. He was so humble, but he was so brilliant. You can't, you just can't not see. We get to go from the book of Acts. What a blessing. We get to go from the book of Acts and see the missionary journeys right into what he talked to these churches about and how much of a patriot he is. To this day, he's still a patriot. We're still reading it. The reason I went into Galatians, I, I wanted to say this earlier, but I'm glad I waited because a couple people had come in a tiny bit late. But uh, the, reason, the reason that I wanted to do this, right now the core of the preaching on Sunday morning is in the Old Testament. Okay? Wonderful message. We're going to have a great message on Joseph this morning. Again, I can't wait. Pastor Olson has been doing a great job in the book of Kings with, uh, with, uh, with the Kings and all. And the thing that I really don't ever have to worry about, no matter where we're at, I can promise you if we're in the New Testament, we're going to be in the Old Testament. Because that New Testament is, is, is the Old Testament revealed. The New Testament was the, was the Old Testament, it was the New Testament was concealed, and when it's written, then it reveals the Old Testament, he talks about it. And so it doesn't really matter, because I, I, you know, there's a lot of talk out there, well, we've been in the New Testament now for six years, so what? If whoever's teaching it, and the correspondence is good, and it's honorable, and, and we're honoring the Lord, we're going to be bringing it all together. And I can promise you that's what we're going to do here today, if I can get through this part of this, because this is so important. Background. In Paul's day, the word Galatia had two distinct meanings. Ethnically, Galatia was the region of Central Asia Minor inhabited by the Galatians. They were a Celtic people. What does that mean? They were kind of a Celtic people who had migrated to the region from Gaul. Gaul or Gaul-Asians. That's where it came from. In the 3rd century B.C., the Romans conquered this land and the Galatians in 189 B.C., you know, way before Christ came, but allowed them to have some measure of their own independence in trade and worship. In 25 BC, Galatians became a Roman providence incorporating other regions such as Lyconia, Phrygia, Pisidia, um, Ephesus. We were talking about how the, the church at Ephesus, they threw their arms around Paul and they were crying when he left. That's when he was on his second missionary journey Helping, setting up, helping to set up these churches. And that's another thing that you have to look from a mission here. 
We do not see word for word in the book of Acts where it says, Paul founded this church, Paul founded that church. And for, and for those of you who didn't hear the very first part, he is not writing one church here. He's going after the whole region. They all got these letters. It's almost like Paul's 95 thesis to this church. He's, he's writing the churches all throughout that region. If you look at the map of Asia Minor, you have to take out the northern, you just have to take out the northern region because he was not established in there. It was all in the central region. And if you look at the map, you'll see Ephesus, Laodicea, you'll see Lyconia, Phrygia, and Galatia. That the whole region is Galatia, but all these little areas are where the churches were, and they had small little Christian churches that had arisen. You don't see it written word for word saying Paul start those churches, but the fact that this letter to Galatia is written means that he helped start those churches, and he's the one that, he's, that plugged in the doctrine. It's like when this church was started. There was a charter. And if you read our bylaws and you read some of uh, the, the basis of our Constitution, there were three, two or three primary members of this church, a pastor and there was an elder and all that, that basically helped write it. But there was all kinds of correspondence outside of that that helped write our bylaws. There were several that helped. And that's the same thing with Paul. Paul comes in and he basically is the basis of their teaching and their doctrine but then there's all kind of help that came. Peter came along and he helped. Some of the other apostles helped and some of the other theologians, they helped. Remember Apollos. Remember Apollos watered. He goes, oh, Apollos is, I've planted. Apollos has watered. Or no, Apollos has planted. I've watered. God must give the increase. There were many others. Timothy, he's another one that was part of this. This all kind of connects. So we see here in verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I love, he says, not by man, but by Christ, who raised from the dead. And what he's saying here is very simple. There's only one that ever raised himself from the dead. And I think he puts it in the first verse. It's brilliant. And what he's saying is, well, all these false gods you're worshiping, these people, have any of them risen from the dead yet? Have they pulled themselves out of the grave after three days and walked out of there seen by over 500 people? No. Well, if they haven't, they're not God. And that's what he's saying here. Get back to the background here. Parts of Lyconia, Phrygia, all that, through that area. Acts does not record this exactly. Paul writes 13 epistles. And here we're reading this one, and this is very important. Various churches and regions, he wrote this to counter the undermining of the central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, which was opposed... Paul is uplifting this doctrine of Christ, justification by faith, but what he's doing is he is opposing the requirements of the Judaizers that were forcing the Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes and submitting fully to the Mosaic Law before they would ever be any type of Christian. They did not want these followers to become Christians. So they put them through this proselyte, ritualistic, Jewish, pharisaic order that they had to do all these ceremonial laws. They had to honor the rituals. They had to honor all of the old... They, he had them, they, they had them still. Paul catches them. They're still sacrificing animals. When Paul said not to, he said, Christ is the unblemished lamb. You don't, you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. These are the kind of things that he saw, that he heard about. And he, so he writes these letters and he says, what are you doing? Under the new covenant of Christ dying and resurrecting from the dead, you are supposed to be following the doctrine and the gospel of Christ. Here's the key word. 
This is where that Hebrew root movement. Now, I was talking about this a little bit earlier. I started reading that book, Restoration. There were two things. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I had, I, it's just got my curiosity. There were two things that have come up, and this is what happens with non-Messianic Jews. There was a word that they use in order to be able to understand the old ceremonial laws and to go away from the proverbial foundations of Christianity. It basically says to go away from that. You have to remember that Christians that are against this old Judaizer ceremonial law, they are iconoclastic. That means these Christians do not like the old implements of the ceremonial law. They worship these. They worship these old implements. Like whether it's, whether it's the feast days, all the implements for the feast days going back to the different type of worship under the Mosaic law, they're still worshiping all of that. Christ abrogated. He abrogated that. And what they're doing is they're blaspheming something extremely important. I never saw this until I started getting into this. And I never really put two and two together. It's so elementary. They were blaspheming the fulfillment of the law. That's the problem. What did it say? Christ did not come to change the law, but to fulfill it? That's in Corinthians. And, and he's saying, but they do not. They do not give you a joint venture with Christ as the basis of your salvation. You want to worship on the Sabbath day on Saturday? I, I've, I've, heard, I've heard messages. Calvin said it. I think it's a very dangerous thing to tell people that it's okay to worship on another day. There's a difference between corporate worship and a difference between personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Six days of the week, not on Sabbath day, you're to worship the Lord. That's not corporate worship. But when you have a church, you have a session, you've become a member of that church, and remember this, if you are not a member of a Presbyterian church, you're not Presbyterian. You're not. You have to be a member of a Presbyterian church. You have to be a member to be in the Presbyterian and be a Presbyterian. If not, you're basically autonomous. You're not a member, that means you're not part... You have not submitted, basically, to the bylaws and the church government. My father said that. He wrote that. Others wrote that when it came to writing some of the stuff down for this church. But if you're not a member, you're not a Presbyterian. You're just basically autonomous. And there are a lot of people, some we know, that just love being autonomous. Lisi. No, but they do fall under a Presbyterian minister... That's, that's predicated on his voting rights. But a Presbyterian is under the church. It is under the Presbyterian, um, the old Presbyterian form of church government. That he is to follow the doctrinal laws. He is to follow the mode of baptism and communion. That's different when it comes to voting. You're right about that. But he still, as a Presbyterian minister, minister, he is the one, as the priest did, that has to preach the Presbyterian doctrines. And the Presbyterian doctrines are very simple. You just go back to Acts 6 and you can find all, all about them. Bottom line, the bottom line here is what Paul is basically trying to say about this Judaizing movement. Christ came to fulfill the law. If that's not enough, and we still have to go back and worship the old law and try to do that and say that, well, Jesus is part of it, then we've just blasphemed the fulfillment of the law. It's not enough. 
Let's look at that a minute. Paul identifies himself now as the chief player, not as the chief player of the Pharisaical order, not as an expert in Jewish law, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The three criteria which we said, number one, thought that was great, you all got it greatly. Called by Christ, witnessed His resurrection, and physically talked to Him. Paul demands in his letters a hearing from the church to employ the authority of his apostleship for the purpose of enforcing this doctrine. He says, I am an apostle. Now here's the big question. This is where I think a lot of church leaders get confused. You, 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 if, you're not, if you're not in awe of the work of Christ and Paul, the first thing you're going to say is, what do I care if he said he was an apostle or not? I don't care if he was a prophet, an apostle, or whether he was a, whether he was a priest or a governor. What do you care? Well, let me tell you something why it's so important to Paul. Paul knew something that the prophets knew. If you take the office of a prophet, the, the apostleship was the new covenant prophet. The new covenant prophet in the New Testament had ability to heal. Look at the miracles that Moses did. He was a prophet. Look at the miracles of Jeremiah. Look at the miracles. Look at what Ezekiel was under when God himself took him into the valley of the dry bones and showed him resurrecting these dead bones from the dead, building up the Israelite armies. They had power. Where were some of the healings of people that were dying or dead in the New Testament? I mean, Old Testament, do you remember? Was there any miracles in the Old Testament? What's that? Yes, there's one. Yes, right. Elijah laid over him, and he, he came. He 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 rose from the dead. What if there was a man that had leprosy? What happened with him? Remember Naaman? He was furious, and he said, "Go down." He wanted to go into his own river. He wanted to go into another body. Nope, God said, I said, you go into the Jordan River seven times. Perfect number. And he went down kicking and screaming, but he finally did it. What happened? He got healed. So, and so we know in the Old Testament there are miracles. So the prophets had the same power, and then the apostles come in on the scene. The Lord himself, he instigates the office of the apostleship, there's Peter and John at that beautiful gate, and there's a man who's impotent, and he says, he goes, do you have any money? And Peter says, no, but I'll give you something better. I'll give you legs back. And he heals him. That's pretty good. I think that's a good trade-off. He gets his legs back. What about the fellow who was snoring away up in the window about three stories up, and he falls out dead on the first day of the week, by the way, on the first day of the week in Acts 16, worshiping. It said he was worshiping on the first day of the week, Sabbath day. It was almost like Paul went up to Eutychus and said, you just interrupted me. He's laying there dead. You just interrupted me. Get up. You read it. That's the way I see it. He's up and preaching for three hours. You just, you're dead. You're getting up. Get up. And he gets up and he starts breathing and then he's fine. You know, that's what it was like. <coughs> and Eutychus is raised from the dead. Then there was a man named Lazarus. And remember, Christ himself. Here comes a big question for you. Lisa. Yeah. That's right. Sorry to look at my watch, but every time I, we start getting going, we have good correspondence. And I look at the watch and it's over with. <laughs> it's incredible. No, that's great. I, that, that's, what else? There are other ones. 
All right, here's the question for the ultimate question. You have to know the answer, because I asked it about six months ago. I know you probably might have forgotten. Out of all the apostles, who was the greatest? Was it Peter, James, John, or was it Bartholomew? Who was the greatest? Yes, we got it. Because if you said anything else, I'd have to go zonk. Try again, you, you lose. Christ was the ultimate apostle. He is the ultimate martyr. We forget that, don't we? Isn't it amazing how we don't see Christ in the Book of Martyrs? He should be the very first one. Fox's Book of Martyrs. But he is the greatest apostle. He is the greatest martyr. And here we go. Paul here is saying, I am an apostle not called by men. And if you're a Christian, you're not called by men. You're called by Christ if you love him. Some people were asking me about this church, about this whole COVID thing, and they're acting like it was some big deal that we kept the church open. So what? It's the same thing we did every week for 30 years. And they said, one, one pastor from Presbyterian College says, are you going to shut your church down? I said, what are you talking about? It's not my church. I don't own it. I go, I attend there, I work, I serve at it, but it's Christ's church. And I pulled out about 100 Bible verses that says, no matter what, don't you ever forsake corporate worship. So my point is, is that you are a Christian and you love Christ. It's not because you went back to the ceremonial laws and you started spinning around whatever these things are, they spin around and the, and the candles and the candelabras and all the, the, the feast, the Passover, eating unleavened bread. It's not because of that. It's because of Christ. Paul says, I am called of Christ. Not Peter, not the Jewish council. They knew that they had a Jewish council, not by Gamaliel. I am called by Christ himself. And I could stand here for three weeks and just repeat what I just said a hundred times. I would love to do that because we need to understand how important that is. You're called by Christ. You've got a gift that you can't even begin. You don't even know how to process it in your brain right now. You don't. You don't know how to process how wonderful having the Holy Spirit of your heart is the greatest gift you'll ever be able to even process in your brain. Paul loved it. He loved it. He didn't care about anything else. He didn't care about dying. He didn't care about COVID-19 down there and sitting in stone pews that were separated or shutting down the synagogues. He didn't care. He would have never done that. He cared about the gospel. And that's all. He was so thankful that the Lord had... Uh, he must have been asking the question, why me? I was a Pharisee. I was happy. I was rich. I had everything. Why didn't you call Caiaphas? We'd be reading the epistles of Caiaphas right now. Why didn't you call Annas? Why didn't you call some of these other Jews? No, he, he must be saying, Lord, thank you. You called me. Can we, even, can we agree on that if we're Christians? Sadly, there were those Galatians who purported to lessen Paul's authority and deflate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one central motif of a called prophet or apostle is that although there may have been great patience to dignify even the most blatant opposer with sensitivity and long-suffering, when it came to the truth of the gospel, here it goes. What did I just say? When it came, Paul talked to people and he debated. This is what I mean by this. He debated, and you saw in the book of Acts how sensitive he was to them. He treated them with respect. When he went to the Isle of Moulton, he stood there. He treated the people there with respect. He, he was long-suffering with them. He was patient with them. He didn't just walk into a synagogue and somebody said, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, you're going to hell, I'm going to the next town. No, he, 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 he poured his heart out to them and begged them to consider what you're rejecting. He would do it, but... When the rubber hit the road, just like the prophets of old and the apostles, he never compromised. 
That's so important today. He never compromised. He, he, never, he never would have given in to the LGBTQ movement. He would have never given in to these stupid signs in front of these churches, blaspheming and mocking God. There's a church, the Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, Jesus Christ Superstar, March 8. When is that ever going to go away? I mean, how can you even begin to put that on a sign out in front of your church? I mean, it's better. I mean, it's like somebody needs to go down there and just, just, just take a big old sign with red letters and put Ichabod on it. And that's basically, you know, I think of the three Hebrew boys. Matthew, could you look up Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18? We've read it before. I'll read it again. I'm going to read it probably a thousand more times. I, one of my favorite parts of Scripture. When they're all standing there, the fire is stoked up seven times, and Nebuchadnezzar tells those boys to get on their knees. What did they say? Daniel 3, 16 to 18. They would not compromise. And that is extremely important what Paul is teaching us here this morning. Paul assured them of the duty of his commission. The reason why he did that was to give them the authenticity. And there are two reasons, going back to what we were talking about 15, 10, 15 minutes ago, why it's so important that even if you think in your head, people do not care whether you're a Christian or not, so why bother? Bother! Do it! And I'll tell you why Paul did it. He knew one of two things, and the prophets spoke about this. Jeremiah spoke about this. Isaiah really brought this together. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by the Lord, I called by the Lord, and if he's speaking to people that are saying, who, I don't care what you are, I don't believe in an apostle, and I don't believe in anything else but the old ceremonial law I'm going back, that doesn't matter. Paul has assertiveness in his brain put there by the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, I don't care whether they think I'm an apostle or not. I am going to declare to them why I am here. The authenticity of my commission says Christ called me, and if they listen to me, the Lord may save them. What could be more wonderful? But if they don't, God help them. Because of rejection, that is a responsibility put on somebody that never can they ever say, I didn't hear it. He knew that, and he, that's why he said this. Lisey. Right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Plead. Yes. Amen. Right. That's right. Because really, it's tough, especially when you love people and you see family members and 
Yes. That's right. Yeah. That cracks open a massive egg. Because the first thing that comes to mind when you're saying to the word, you're talking about begging and pleading. This really what bothers me when you say that. What you're, you're right 100%. This is what bothers me. Read Romans chapter 12, verse 1. When you get a chance, go to one of these websites, Romans 12, verse 1, and look at all the different types of Bibles. Now, at least he says something, and as Christians, we are to obey. We are to plead. We're one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. If you go into some of the different forms of Bibles that are out there, the different translations, it opens up. You can go, go home if you get a chance today. Go on the Internet, and you will find a website where you look up a Bible verse, and it'll have a whole drop-down of different Bibles, and in a second you can look at all the different versions. Paul opens up. He says... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, perfect will of God, which is your what? Uh-uh. You're right. The other Bible says, other Bibles say, I ask you, I implore you, which is your normative worship? That totally changes the whole meaning in one verse. So how many more verses does it change? Paul says, I beseech you, at least he's, I beg you by the mercies of God that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice, which is the least you can do. Your reasonable service is your normative service. This is the least you can do. Why? And you have to look at it like this, and this is what I'm trying to get your, get, get your minds on this, to look at it like this. You don't always see what is in Scripture. Sometimes it's what's not in Scripture that confirms and illuminates the the essence of the truth of it, to reify in your heart that you have a standard and you know what the truth is. Because if you don't have that, you can be pulled anywhere else. But Paul says when it's your reasonable service, what Christ is saying, if I shed my clothes naked on a cross and I was mutilated to death for your sins and I shed my perfect blood when I did nothing wrong, that's your reasonable service. That's the least you can do for me. And that's what Paul's saying here. Why? He's saying, why can't we just keep our eyes on Christ? Lisey. Yes, right. That's right. Those, all the parables are illuminating that. I'm sorry, but that, that's, what they, that's what they do. All the parables illuminate. Here's another thing. We talked about a couple. Oh, we're done. All right. Next week will be very interesting because we got some other things to go into. We talked about this morning about how Christ says, Paul says, because of Christ in verse 1, he says here, and I, I don't want to paraphrase this, Father and God the Father who raised him from the dead. We just gave an infallible proof of Christ. Now, something at least he just said, I can't remember now exactly the second part of what she said, but what it did make me go through into my brain is another infallible proof of Christ, which Paul will deal with. He'll deal with it in another way, but we're going to deal with it. Something fascinating. How many times did Christ ask anybody to pray for him when he was on this earth? Not for him, each other. 
How many times, well, let me, let, let me put it to you like this. How many times did Christ ask the disciples and the apostles, the church leaders and the priests to pray for his sins? No, you'll never find that. Another infallible proof that he's Christ. He never had to. He never asked them to pray for him. He said, he, what did he say to the women when he was walking up the Via Della Rosa, up to Calvary? He says to them, pray for your children. Yourselves and your children. Pray for your brethren. What did he say to Peter? He goes, Judas, I have not prayed for you. You have to read into that. He didn't say that, but he didn't pray for you. He goes, but I've prayed for you. Strengthen the brethren. He didn't say to Peter, pray for me. He said, I'll pray for you. I mean, this is powerful stuff. And when Paul gets into this and he talks about the blasphemy of the fulfillment of the law, if Christ fulfilled that law, how dare anybody go back and go and try to abrogate what Christ did and go back to the ceremonial laws and try to make that as a joint venture for what he did. Next week, we didn't get to point here. What did he say on the cross? Three words. It's finished. Why isn't that enough? It's enough for me. I take time, as long as I can remember being on this earth, that's been enough for me. I'm not bragging. Yes, I am, because I love that. It is enough. It is finished. He said, I finished that work, which, which was given to him. It's done. And that, and, that's all we, and that is where our worship picks up at the cross, where he says it is finished, and he resurrects from the dead. He's on the right hand of the Father, and we take it from there. We don't jump over that and go all the way back to the Mosaic Law and worship Moses and Abraham. We don't do that. It's what's wonderful to preach and to teach and to show where they love Christ. We need to be careful with that. Let's, let's finish with prayer this morning. I asked maybe uh, Jacob, could you close us this morning? Thank you.